Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 65, Dr. Joshua Blander on John Dunn's SCOTUS on Identity and Distinction. Before we get to our main feature, I want to follow up on a listener question from last episode, and this concerns the subject matter of podcasts number 62 and 63, which is Jesus' statement in John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. A listener asked, basically, when did this verse get to be considered important for making some sort of Trinitarian point? In other words, that Jesus is God himself, or that he is divine, or just that he's everlasting or eternal. And so I dug hard into my library this week to try to find early references to this text. What I found was interesting. In the Apostolic Fathers, there's no obvious reference to anything in John 8:12 to 8:59. This includes authors like Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, the Didache, Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas. Now you might think there's one exception. But that's in the longer and obviously corrupted and later version of Ignatius's letter to the Magnesians, chapter 9. Scholars now believe that this comes from the 4th century and not at all from the 2nd century. John 8.58 is referred to there, but seemingly the point is just that Jesus was predicted and foreknown. You also see no reference at all to John 8.58 in the extant works of Justin Martyr. That's interesting nor are there any references in the works of other early Logos theologians like Tatian, Theophilus, Athenagoras, and Clement of Alexandria. Things finally pick up when we get to Irenaeus. He refers to this text, for instance, in Against Heresies 4.5, to prove that Jesus pre-existed his human life and was the one through whom God spoke to Moses, Abraham, and the other Old Testament fathers. And this then becomes a common pattern. You see both Tertullian and Origen appeal to this text to show that Jesus was active in Old Testament times, or just that Jesus existed before Abraham. They don't use it, though, to prove that Jesus is God himself, or to prove that Jesus is divine in the way that the Father is divine. Really, at this stage, the only point seems to be pre-existence and also activity in those Old Testament times because they've now taken the view that the Father is too transcendent to have been active then, and so any so-called God that was seen and experienced must have been a different being. Interestingly, nowhere in any of these authors have I found somebody who is connecting John 8.58 to the statements in Isaiah where Yahweh says, I am He, or to God's statement to Moses in Exodus, as discussed in those previous episodes. I think we can draw a conclusion here that it is by no means obvious that the author of John means the reader to refer to either Isaiah or Exodus. And apparently this is obvious to some of us just because we've been repeating it to one another for some time now. And I think this gives some support to the interpretation argued for in those two earlier podcast episodes that Jesus' meaning in that passage is best captured by something like this, even before Abraham existed, I was predestined to be the Messiah. I'm still digging through some ancient sources, and so I'll get back to you again next week and let you know what more I found later on in the patristic era. 
If you think I've missed something in these early sources from the second and first half of the third centuries, please let me know by sending me some audio feedback or by leaving a comment on this blog post. John Duns Scotus, nicknamed by tradition the Subtle Doctor, was one of the most important medieval Christian philosophers and was notorious for the difficulty of his thought. In this episode, we hear a specialist in medieval philosophy give a conference presentation on Scotus's views on identity and distinction. But first, a little science fiction. Are you familiar with the transporter technology in any of the Star Trek movies or in any of the several Star Trek TV series? It sounds like this. And it's supposedly a way to transport people, for instance, from a spaceship down to the surface of the planet and back. The machine supposedly copies your pattern, that is, the existence and location of every single particle in you. It records that somehow, and then, as it were, prints out another copy of it down on the planet. And this is supposed to count as transporting you to the planet. Well, never mind if that really works or not. Personally, I wouldn't get into a machine like that. But occasionally there's a plot twist, and what happens is you're standing on the platform and the machine copies your pattern, that is, it copies where every single particle in you is, but then you don't disappear, so while you're still standing there, it, as it were, prints out another copy of you. If the machine worked, you'd be looking at somebody who was almost completely the same as you. This newly minted person would have a very high degree of qualitative sameness with you. What they wouldn't have is numerical sameness with you. Nothing else can be numerically the same as you. Numerical sameness doesn't come in degrees, and it's a symmetrical relation. So if Barak is identical to Barry, then Barry is identical to Barak. And it's a transitive relation. So if Mr. O is identical to Barry, and Barry is identical to Barak, then it follows that Mr. O is identical to Barak. And finally, numerical identity is a reflexive relation. It's a relation which a thing can only bear to itself and never to anything else. So we all have concepts of similarity, which is to say qualitative sameness, and numerical identity, that is, being the same thing as, or philosophers say, absolute identity. But if these two concepts of sameness are all we have, then it looks like there's going to be some trouble with Trinitarian theology. For instance, consider this triad of claims. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Father is not the same as the Son. Suppose that we interpret is and is the same as here to mean numerical identity. In this case, we would have an inconsistent triad of claims, three claims such that only two of them could be true. Whichever two are true, the third has to be false. If the Father is numerically identical to God, and so is the Son, then it follows, because numerical identity is symmetrical and transitive, that the Father and Son are numerically identical. And so then, the last claim would be false, that the Father is not the same as the Son. Why is this a problem? Well, you may think that Trinitarian orthodoxy requires all three of those claims, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and yet the Father is not the same as the Son. For instance, arguably, the Athanasian Creed requires all of them. Why not just deny the third claim and say that the Father is the Son? 
Well, that's a disastrous conclusion. We know that a thing can't at the same time and in the same way differ from itself, but according to the New Testament, the Father and Son have differed. To put it differently, numerical sameness forces indiscernibility. It forces the two things that are identical to not differ in any way, because they're really only one thing. If any A just is some B, then A and B can't differ. Now, according to the New Testament, the Father and Son do differ, and so they must be non-identical. That is, they must be numerically distinct. What does it mean to say, then, that each of them is God? Perhaps the statements simply mean that each is divine, that each has the divine attributes or a divine nature. We could then say that Father and Son are numerically distinct, however they are similar, that is, like one another in respect of being divine. But then we would have two beings, each of which is divine, and this would appear to be two gods. What now? One response is to make additional distinctions, to argue that our concepts of numerical and qualitative sameness are not enough. We need more than the concept of similarity and the concept of being numerically the same thing as. This is the course pursued by the famous medieval philosopher John Duns Scotus. He holds that we must consider sameness and difference both in the mind and, as it were, on the side of things in the world, and then he goes on to make further distinctions. Our presenter today is Dr. Joshua Blander, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the King's College in New York City. His PhD in philosophy is from UCLA, and he also holds degrees from Biola University and the University of Pennsylvania. I had the privilege of recording him at the Society of Christian Philosophers meeting at Niagara University on November 8, 2014. As I mentioned, SCOTUS is difficult, and this presentation is well done, but that doesn't mean it's easy to follow. It may help if you get Dr. Blander's handout, which is on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. I don't always do this, but in this presentation I've included most of the Q&A session afterwards, as I think it helps to clarify things a little bit. I only cut out one question and answer, as it seemed to be a bit of a diversion from the topics. Here, then, is Dr. Blander. All right, good morning. I'm thankful to the conference organizers for recognizing the importance of having a paper on Duns Scotus, because today is actually Duns Scotus's feast day. Perfect coincidence. So this paper deals with, in rather general terms, with Scotus's theory of identity and distinction. And his concerns for a theory of identity and distinction are, of course, somewhat theological. They're also philosophical. This theory is supposed to be perfectly general. When you get to someone like Occam, the theories are not general. He wants to have special uh, accounts of identity and distinction uh, in order to talk about theological cases as opposed to cases in the natural order or in the created realm. But Scotus's theory is perfectly consistent. It's supposed to handle questions about distinction and identity both across the created order and in divine cases. It's a somewhat unique theory in the uh, late medieval period, uh, especially in the shadow of people like Aquinas, who, who certainly uh, thought that there should be some variation in, in theories, how, how they apply to God and how they apply to creatures. So uh, I'm just going to jump into the nuts and bolts of the theory. That's where I focus in this paper. 
So most medieval discussions of the various types of distinctions suggest that there are two basic types. The first is the distinction of reason, and the second is the real distinction. And for a variety of theological and philosophical reasons, many medieval philosophers were unconvinced that this list of distinctions was exhaustive and proposed various so-called intermediate distinctions. One fundamental motivation for those alternatives, though assuredly not the only one, was theological. They wanted to provide an account of the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but there were other cases where uh, medieval philosophers thought there should be the co-presence of identity and simplicity uh, along with some sort of distinction. Now the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity demanded that one adhere to the Trinitarian claim of the Athanasian Creed, which says, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet they are not three gods, but one God. So you have the following claims. There is exactly one God, there are exactly three divine persons, and each of those divine persons is God, and no divine person is identical to any of the other divine persons. Theologians have traditionally argued that orthodoxy also includes a commitment to divine simplicity. So the Christian must also affirm that God is ontologically simple. So as we encounter when we explore identity and distinction in SCOTUS, uh, the doctrinal commitments offer sizable challenges to the believer who wishes to maintain quite ordinary beliefs about the nature of identity and distinction. Nonetheless, most Christian medieval philosophers believe they could overcome these challenges in ways that are both logically and metaphysically plausible. Now, what we're going to encounter in SCOTUS is a theory that takes seriously the need for additional notions of identity and distinction uh, in order to account for cases like the Trinity. Thus, like many of his contemporaries and his predecessors, he eschews the division between real distinction and distinction of reason as exhaustive. Though he maintains the basic distinction between the two, he believes that each of them needs a more fine-grained analysis. For Scotus, the division between the real and conceptual distinctions is just a way for us to get onto the fact that there's a distinction between things, well, dis dis a distinction between distinctions that are ex parte re, which are uh, on the side of things, and those that are, on, that are just found in the activity of the mind. However, when Scotus takes up these kinds of questions, that's not his starting place. Instead, he emphasizes, instead of distinction, the need to explain various sorts of identity. So he thinks that distinction actually should be explained in terms of identity. Though, when he talks about identity, he seems to be including something like what we would often call sameness. So the distinctions, or the divisions in his discussion, are between identity and non-identity, but then he'll make a, another divide between types of identity that are qualified and types that are unqualified. And he'll also talk about non-identity as either qualified or unqualified. And various combinations of these are supposed to yield uh, a variety of necessary conditions for the distinctions described in his theory. So we can begin with the familiar ones. So in the, distinction, in the case of the distinction of reason, and ultimately any distinction that's not ex parte re, he indicates that, and this is the first necessary condition for that's listed here, if x and y are not distinct on the side of things, then x and y are simply and unqualifiedly identical. Again, that will include the distinction of reason. It might include other types of distinctions. We're going to be 
not talking about those very much today. This seems like a reasonably straightforward suggestion since no qualification should be needed on the identity that holds in cases where you have merely a distinction of reason. On the other hand, in the case of the real distinction, SCOTUS suggests the second item that I've listed there. If X and Y are really distinct, then X and Y are simply and unqualifiedly non-identical. Again, this at first at least appears quite appropriate as there's seemingly no good reason to offer any qualification on the non-identity between really distinct entities. So it's important to note that there is an important asymmetry between these claims here though. The first description bears on all cases in which there's no distinction on the side of things. On the other hand, the latter discusses only one particular way in which there can be a distinction on the side of things. SCOTUS claims that the real, formal, and adequate distinctions, three different types of distinctions that are ex parte re, or on the side of things, all obtain independent of or prior to the activity of the intellect and mark off some genuine difference in the world or reality. So you can see what he's talked about here is just the real distinction. So the second description isn't exhaustive. So we need at least one more description of, the necessary, of any necessary conditions for additional distinctions that are on the side of things. So we have the following. If X and Y are either formally or adequately distinct, then X and Y are A, qualifiedly non-identical, and B, simply and unqualifiedly identical. Unlike the previous two proposals that were reasonably straightforward, this one is rather puzzling. To begin with, Scotus suggests that both the formal and the adequate distinctions will bo involve both identity and non-identity. And that seems at least prima facie paradoxical and perhaps even contradictory. Secondly, Scotus now introduces the idea of qualification. He claims that where there's a formal or an adequate distinction, there's qualified non-identity. What this qualification amounts to at this point is not clear. So we have to carefully examine the text of his Paris Repertatio Distinction 33, where he describes and explains these distinctions if we want to understand what he's claiming here and try to make some sense of it. So I'm going to refer to a number of texts in his Paris Repertatio Distinction 33. They're all taken from question two or question three. Um, and as you can see on the handout, I've noted them all just with the question and the paragraph number. So let's first examine what he says specifically about qualified non-identity. So in question two, one of his main tasks is to examine what sort of distinction holds between the divine essence and the personal property had by each divine person. For example, paternity in the Father. And whether that distinction would violate the stricture of simplicity in God. So in question two, paragraph 57, Scotus argues that the divine essence and the relation, for example, again, the property of paternity in the divine person, are distinguished in such a way that prior to any act of the intellect, this property is distinguished from the essence in a qualified manner. Though Scotus doesn't yet specify the sort of distinction that's going to apply in that case, he does indicate that whatever distinction is present is ex parte re, excluding the option of considering this distinction to be a distinction of reason. So it can't be a distinction of reason because such a distinction is dependent on or posterior to the activity of the intellect, and that's not what we have here. 
So on the other hand, he also points out that the, that the divine essence and the personal property are qualifiedly distinct or non-identical, which seemingly rules out the presence of the real distinction, because you wouldn't have that qualification in the real distinction. From this, we can presumably infer the claim mentioned earlier, namely that Scotus thinks that there are distinctions that divide reality, but that ought to not be considered real distinctions, at least in the traditional sense of real distinction. In uh, question two, paragraph 59, he makes this point even more clearly. He says, the essence and relation from the very nature of things are distinguished in a qualified way. The distinction of the essence and relation is of thing and thing simply, but the distinction is qualified. Here once again, Scotus makes explicit that the distinction between the relation and the essence is a distinction in reality and not merely one that is generated by the activity of the intellect. The distinction is what is qualified. Now Scotus adds something additional here as well. He indicates that this qualified distinction distinguishes thing and thing. Scotus wants to emphasize here that only the distinction is qualified. Despite the absence of a real distinction, we should not think that the entities distinguished here are, in, are themselves in any way qualified or diminished, such as entities in the mind alone would be, at least on his view. To the contrary, the case that he has in mind involves the divine essence. The divine essence is as real an entity as there is in reality, and it's formally infinite. So the distinction is, cannot be called qualified in virtue of the distinguished things being qualified or being qualified sorts of things. However, this doesn't yet help us understand what Scotus means when he discusses the notion of qualification, when he refers to qualified distinction or non-identity. So at this point, we need to turn to his discussion of simple identity, if we're going to make headway. In the midst of his discussion of the distinction between the personal property and the divine person itself in question three, he provides some additional helpful detail in paragraph 88. He says, the property and the person are identical simply and are distinguished from the very nature of things in a qualified way. So the property of, say, paternity and the first person of the Trinity, the Father, are distinct by way of a qualified distinction ex parte re and are also simply identical, which suggests that there is no qualification on the identity. Therefore, this qualified distinction is compatible with, or can be co-present with, simple identity. He similarly affirms this in question two, which again was the discussion of the distinction between the divine essence and the property. Again, question three was the person and the property. For he points out in paragraph 63 that the presence of distinction or non-identity between one thing and another does not entail that the first cannot be simply identical with the second. Once again, we see Scotus claim that this simple identity is compatible with some kind of distinction in reality. To this point, the account remains puzzling, since it's not yet clear how such a distinction can be co-present with real identity or simple identity. Should we suggest some sort of reductive account of identity? Perhaps we can distinguish between identity that's loose and popular and identity that's strict and philosophical, where only the latter is a genuine sort of identity. So perhaps this real identity that we're talking about can be considered akin to loose and popular identity. 
However, SCOTUS clearly regards real identity as a genuine sort of identity. Surely SCOTUS would not affirm that the Son and the divine nature are identical in a loose and popular sense. So it will do us no good to suggest that real identity is some weakened or qualified notion of identity. For SCOTUS has already indicated that the sort of identity that's present between both A, the property and the person, and B, the property and the essence, is said to be, in both cases, a simple identity. He states this clearly in relation to the former, as quoted in paragraph 63, where he says, from their formal non-identity, it does not follow that the first cannot be simply identical with the other. And he can hardly be clearer than his statement in the case of the latter in question 3, paragraph 89. Their identity is true and perfect. We can remove a good bit of our puzzlement, I think, if we look at Scotus's discussion more carefully. Recall that I previously discussed a passage in paragraph 88, in which Scotus indicates the presence of both this qualified distinction and simple identity. However, in addition to indicating this pair, he also specifies the reason why he says that the distinction is qualified, saying that, quote, they are distinguished from the very nature of things in a qualified sense because they are not formally the same. In other words, since the person and property are formally distinct or formally non-identical, then they are qualifiedly distinct. And this formal non-identity is compatible with or can be co-present with simple identity. He has already affirmed this in question two, for he points out uh, again in paragraph 63, which I just read, from their formal identity, it doesn't follow that the first cannot be simply identical with the other. Once again, we see Scotus claim that simple identity is compatible with some kind of distinction in reality. In this case, it's compatible with the formal distinction or formal non-identity. Now, what is this formal non-identity? In paragraph 63, he continues by describing it in this way. One speaks of the absence of a formal identity between things when one does not pertain to the primary and per se notion of the other in the way the definition or parts of the definition pertain to the notion of what is defined. In other words, when neither is included in the formal meaning of the other, although they are really the same. Scotus explains formal distinction and identity by way of ratio, translated here as meaning. But more plausibly, Scotus is using ratio to indicate the quidditative features of something or things. Thus, there's a quidditative difference whenever there is a difference in ratio. What Scotus seems to have in mind is that formal identity can hold where there is complete overlap of quidditative notion, or formal identity can hold when there is partial overlap of quidditative notion. This suggestion implies that formal identity, like real identity, can allow for some sort of quidditative difference between the relata of the relevant identity relations. Formal distinction or non-identity, on the other hand, implies that there is neither complete nor partial overlap of the quidditative notions. However, Scotus seems to think that the presence of this formal distinction, far from excluding real identity, actually entails real identity. The account here, briefly put, is this, and this is the account at the bottom of the page. 
x is formally distinct from y if and only if a, x is really identical to y, b, the account of what it is to be x is not the same as the account of what it is to be y, where not the same is understood as not involving complete or partial overlap. And C, the account of what it is to be Y is not included in the account of what it is to be X. Therefore, Scotus proposes that there is some important metaphysical difference between X and Y, despite the claim that they are really identical. However, Scotus doesn't suggest that the formal distinction is the only sort of distinction compatible with simple identity. In question two, note, uh, paragraph 78, Scotus uh, discusses what he calls adequate identity and, dis and distinction. For although human and animal are the same by identity in the truest sense, they are not identical adequately or formally, because the notion of humanity is derived from the specific difference, namely rationality, but the notion of animality from the sensitive soul. The same is evidence in the case of being and unity, or whiteness and color, where the formal distinction coexists side by side with true identity, although this identity is not one of adequacy, not according to coextension, and neither according to predication, nor according to excellence and perfection. So Scotus here describes the relationship between human and animal as involving true identity. Indeed, the truest identity, but also lacking adequate or formal identity. To make sense of this, we should have in mind some individual human being, say, Socrates, to whom the terms human and animal can both be applied. Though Socrates, or Socrates' human nature, perhaps, is just one thing, Scotus asks us to consider the difference within that nature between the quidditative account of human and the quidditative account of animal. We can see that they are not formally identical because what it is to be human is different than what it is to be animal. The former involves rationality, while the other involves sensation, quidditatively. But that is not the end of the distinction that he draws. He also asks us to consider a further difference between human and animal, one involving difference in extension, predication, and perfection, which are all the marks of an adequate distinction, and their absence is the mark of adequate identity. What Scotus suggests is that the terms human and animal are not coextensive, even though they are co-present in Socrates. For the extension of the term animal depends on what things have a sensitive soul. And the extension of the term human depends on which things have a rational, th rational soul, while the extension, uh, sorry, which requires something over and above a sensitive soul, namely rationality. Therefore, the term human will have a smaller extension than the term animal. Additionally, Scotus notes that despite the fact that both human and animal are correctly predicated of Socrates, the predications do in fact differ. Again, the predicate animal can be applied to more things than the predicate human, for the same reasons that explain the difference in extension. However, Scotus adds that the difference cuts in both directions on this point. Human indicates something of greater eminence than animal, since the former includes a perfection, rationality, that the latter lacks, 
From this, we can develop a generalized account of the marks of the adequate distinction. If x is adequately distinct from y, then a, the extension of x is greater than the extension of y, b, x is predicated of more than y, and c, y is greater in eminence than x, or vice versa. Sorry, all of them, of course, would be vice versa conditions. Now we can see that SCOTUS claims that true or real identity can coexist with either of two types of qualified non-identity or distinction, either formal or adequate. For as we have already seen SCOTUS state in question two, paragraph 63, this absence of formal identity occurs in cases where things are really the same. As puzzled as we might be by the structure of SCOTUS's account, the best way to understand what he is suggesting may be straightforward. Real identity is what obtains where there is a distinction marking out the presence of something simple. Simplicity, including divine simplicity, at least for SCOTUS, guarantees real identity. In question two, paragraph 56, SCOTUS notes that it is consistent with the simplicity of the divine person, that the relation and the essence be distinguished not only by an act of the intellect. The force of this proposal is that a distinction ex parte rei is not inconsistent with divine simplicity. There can be genuine difference or distinction in reality, even in, or despite, perhaps, the presence of simplicity. In question two, paragraph 78, Scotus says that although God is what he has by the truest identity because of his simplicity, it is not formal or adequate identity. Though God is really or truly identical with everything that is said of him, that identity is not formal and it's not adequate. There are distinctions ex parte rei in God, despite his simplicity and despite his real identity with everything that he has. God possesses the unity of simplicity, but this allows for internal difference in what is one thing or one race. How then should we ultimately understand Scotus's usage of the terms qualified distinction and simple identity? To say that the identity present is simple is to say that there is truly and simply one thing. In the presence of a distinction of reason, or even no distinction at all, that would be the end of the story. In such cases, there is no qualified distinction, because to say that there is a qualified distinction indicates a distinction ex parte rei. Simple identity, then, is, to identity, sorry, is identity to which no qualification is applied. Qualified distinction, on the other hand, is distinction on the side of reality to which some qualification applies. Distinction is qualified in cases of formal or adequate non-identity because neither of those sorts of difference can destroy the simplicity of the entity to which the distinction pertains. Presumably, a real distinction between what are truly two things would be an unqualified distinction. And the presence of a real distinction would, in fact, undermine simplicity. More than anything, Scotus intends to use the notions of simple identity and qualified distinction in order to explain how there can be real diversity within what is genuinely one simple unity. One important outcome of Scotus's discussion is that he seems to articulate multiple senses of identity. 
Recall the text from question 2, paragraph 78, where Scotus says that although God is what he has by the truest identity, because of his simplicity, it is not formal or adequate identity. Though one might interpret this passage as attempting some sort of special pleading, Scotus does not appear to be making exemption for divine cases. For he goes on in the same paragraph to make the same point in conjunction with an ordinary case involving creatures. He says, although human and animal are the same by identity in the truest sense, they are not identical adequately or formally. The same is evident in the case of being in unity or whiteness in color, where the formal distinction exists co coexists side by side with true identity, although this identity is not one of adequacy. What we have here is the suggestion that even if we have a case involving the truest sense of identity, that identity may not be formal identity or adequate identity. We have already seen that formal identity would involve complete or partial overlap of the formal rationes of the entities, and that adequate identity would, re would require that the terms involved had the same extension were predicated of all and only the same things, and were equally eminent. Therefore, the truest sense of identity can allow that there is difference in any of these ways in which there are formal distinctions or adequate distinctions. Furthermore, Scotus points out that this truest sense of identity should also be considered simple identity. Recall that in question 2, paragraph 63, when discussing the distinction between the property and divine essence, he says that from their formal identity, it does not follow that the first cannot be simply identical with the other. And earlier in the same paragraph, he says that the absence of a formal identity can occur even when two things are really the same. Therefore, Scotus is arguing that identity, which is true, simple, and real, is compatible with the absence of formal or adequate identity. As a result of examining this account, we can see that Scotus is an identity pluralist. His basic notion of identity, which he has variously called real, true, and simple, seems to allow for at least some sort of genuine ontological difference, which would stand in contrast with our ordinary notions of identity. On the other hand, he does not appear to abandon a strict account of identity. For he seems to think that wherever we find both formal and adequate identity, there appears to be strictly no difference. Though it might seem odd that Scotus calls real identity an actual type of identity and perhaps thinks of it as the most basic type of identity, if we keep in mind his concern for preserving simplicity in a variety of cases, especially in the divine case, we can understand his motivation for understanding it as a type of identity, even the most basic type. What Scotus has done is disambiguate what he considers two different notions of identity both of which will enable us to understand identity claims, both in relation to various cases in creatures, as well as in the divine cases, including the Trinity. Scotus's identity pluralism does not require us to abandon an account of strict identity that includes the standard formal properties of identity. His account does, however, claim that this less than absolute identity is a genuine sort of identity. Thus, X and Y can be truly, really, and simply the same, even without being strictly identical. So according to Scotus, formal, adequate, and real identity, though not strict identity, are all nonetheless species of true identity. Thanks.
Yeah, Dale. Um, so there are three concepts of distinctness which are real, formal, and adequate. And real is the same as simple and unqualified. Is that right? And true? Yes. Okay. But none of these force indiscernibility? Correct. But when you have when well when you have formal and adequate together, sorry, when you have formal identity and adequate identity, you'll have complete identity or strict identity. Like what we would call identity. Yes. Like the forces and distinctness. Yes. Yeah. When you have formal identity and adequate identity in in something. I mean, forces no qualitative differences. Like, uh, right. Forces and discernibility. Yeah, it'll satisfy things like. Indiscernibility, symmetry, transitivity, and so on, yeah. So it'll function just like absolute identity in our sense. Man, I need a chart that lays out all these and also says how it relates to our common logical concept of identity. Because I would have thought that our identity was the first thing that you mentioned. Um, yes. But now if you're saying that it's implied by formal and adequate identity together, now I'm really lost. <laughs> well, formal, so not formal distinction, right? Formal identity. So formal identity says there's no difference in quiddity or quiditative account. And adequate identity says that there's overlap, right? So, so sorry, you have no ch difference in eminence or in extension. So quiddity in the sense of a universal, right? Like two dogs. Well, the... He's, he, he doesn't have, I mean, universals are in the mind for SCOTUS, so the common nature, though, yeah. yeah. So anything, but it doesn't have to be just a universal. The notion of ratio runs wider. Um, it's at least as wide as Aristotelian definition, if not more. So just, I mean, as far as the payoff for the Trinity, so like then for the divine essence in each person, he says they're simple, simply identical and formally distinct. Yes. And to say they're simply identical doesn't at all mean what we mean by identity in life, in the sense that force is indiscernibility. So can you say a little more, what, what does it mean that they're, they're simply identical? I've tried many times. I don't know that I have a robust account to give you, but um, he thinks, uh, he, he, he seems to want to say that it's, uh, it's, it's a way of talking about the unity of the thing, so there's one thing. But he actually doesn't give us an analysis that goes any further than that. He, t he takes that as basic and then we work from there to explain difference. The texts don't really work that out in any more detail. But there has to be a unity and he takes that to be, I think he takes it to be primitive. So I mean, if we're trying to parse him, you know, does he think, say, the Father is identical to the divine essence or not in the sense that we mean identity? No. It's unclear. He doesn't. Is no, he doesn't think that they're identical in our sense. Because what it is to be the Father is quidditatively distinct from what it is to be the divine essence. Right, so because they differ, they can't be identical in our sense. Right. So then he's saying they're the same in a sense, which is hard for us to understand. Yeah, I mean, again, he catches it out in terms of unity, but his account of unity, he doesn't develop the account of unity in any of these texts that, that I've been looking at, um, any more than just to say that it's a. Again, it's primitive. There's just one thing there. But we have to explain that there's difference. And it has to be in terms of quiddity. To be fair to him, I mean, I, I find that people will either say that some sort of distinction is primitive or some sort of unity is primitive. 
I, I tend to think that there, you're gonna end up with something primitive in all of these cases. Maybe it's the wrong place for him to say it's primitive, but that's, that seems just to be what, what he wants to say. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, thanks, I, very interesting paper. I might know nothing about this, so this might be a really naive question, but it concerns the, the account of the formal distinction that you have at the bottom of the page and the Socrates example. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I may not have quite been tracking with the Socrates example, but I mean, so I, I think it's sort of, a, you know, the, the, the claim would be that um, though, Let's say Socrates, the human, and Socrates, the animal, are in some sense really identical. Um, they're formally distinct. Is that that's sort of like, am I on the right track? They're at least adequately distinct. Right. Um, in some places, he says they're formally distinct, but it's not. It's not. He's not consistent. It's not clear that he's consistent about that. Because I was concerned with the. the if, if you thought that so, if um, you know, so the second condition, the B condition, the account of what is to be X is not the same account of what is to be Y, so the account of what is to be human is not the same account of what is to be an animal. Yes. The account of what is to be Y is not included in the account of what is to be an X, but now, I don't know anything about what Scotus says about what humans are, but I mean, if, if it's rational animal or something like that, then that condition, I would think, wouldn't be satisfied because part of what... Right. Yeah, and this is a challenge for him, um, and it's why I think he's not consistent on it. So if you look at his uh, questions on the metaphysics, he seems to have a, a view that tries to take that kind of concern into account. But in the repertatio, it seems like he might be back to thinking of them as the same. In paragraph 78, he makes this comment that the notion of humanity is derived from the specific difference, namely rationality, but the notion of animality from the sensitive soul. So it may be just that he has a layered account of souls. So this would be a non-Thomistic account. And so he can say that the, the sensitive soul and the, and the rational soul are distinct things. Uh, we do, we just have two souls or something like that. Um, but I'm just not sure how he wants to spell that out. Again, based on the variation between the questions of the metaphysics and the repertatio. That's why I say I, I'd rather just stick with saying he's talking about adequate identity there instead of formal identity. And the, the reason I bring in the adequate identity, because I'm actually mostly interested in the formal distinction, formal identity, it's just because in order to get that strict notion of identity, as, you know, as Dale was pointing out, I need to include both adequate and formal identity. Otherwise, I don't get the, all, the, all the properties of, of standard uh, accounts of identity. Mark. So I'm part of it. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in Tom's situation here, but even worse. Um, so so I, mean, I, I want to ask about the other side, the distinctions in reason, and, and how um, the formal and adequacy distinctions are not, why they're not distinctions in reason. I take it that on this view, um, distinctions in reason, there's a distinction between, between like adequate distinctions in reason and inadequate ones, like there can be correctness and falsity in distinctions in reason, is that right? So if I distinguish between two things, you say, oh, that's just a distinction in reason, right? Some of those, but sometimes I could be correct or not misleading, not misguided in making the distinction. In other cases, I wouldn't be. Is that true? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I I'm, suppose it would depend on the corrigibility of our awareness of our concepts or something like that. I guess, okay, maybe, maybe that I need one more step back. What's okay. the distinction in reason? Distinction in reason would be a case that's like um, Superman and Clark Kent or the morning star and the evening star. Okay, well, yep. okay so why aren't, you know, when we characterize what makes one of those, right, 
why wouldn't it be the case that we would use language very similar to this formal distinction stuff, right? So, so why why aren't these distinctions in reason? Is what I meant. So, so if I said, well, look, um, here's the account of what it is to be Clark Kent or Superman or whatever, right? And I give some story about you know working with the Daily Planet or whatever, or being born. And this other one is about having powers or whatever, right? I say, well, what I've just shown is that these are really formally distinct. Superman, mm -hmm. Superman, and Clark Kent, right? So what I'm asking is. Whereas it might be the case that if, you know, we might make a distinction, right, we might be confused or whatever, right? Um, it, so is it going to be the case that once you include the notion of an account, my alarm bells go off and I start thinking, well, an account sounds like a distinction of the reason, yeah. right? So, so can you, and, and if you say, well, no, it's really on the based on the side of things, it's, well, you know, that looks like you're beginning to introduce, you know, real distinction. So right. Can you help me, like, see how I can, like, Walk, how it like walks that tightrope. Yeah, yeah. So I have a section where I try to contrast the distinction of reason from these other distinctions that um, doesn't didn't fit in this, of course. And so the distinction of reason. I mean, it's often treated just as an intuitive difference because the, the distinctions of reason don't get a lot of discussion in SCOTUS. But all of these distinctions ex parte rei are supposed to be. Uh, distinctions that exist even if, per the impossible, there were no intellects to exist. And the suggestion is that the distinction that we make between, sorry, the distinction between the morning star and the evening star is a distinction that we make using the intellect. We access or we generate different distinct concepts as a result of our interactions with, with a single object. And for every case of formal distinction, adequate distinction, real distinction, we're talking about objects that, in fact, prior to any activity of the intellect, would already hold for the universe. That's very, very helpful. Yeah. Can I do one more quick? So, um, another thing, just an application. So, occasionally you get discussions of things in the clients of um, divine simplicity, talking about God's, say, you know, God's wisdom is identical with God's power and so forth. Are those, I mean, is that the sort of thing that SCOTUS would characterize as being just formally distinct in God? Uh, absolutely, the, yes. All the. Yeah, all the divine attributes are formally distinct from one another for SCOTUS. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the last question. Okay. Yeah, Bill. So, um, actually, I'm just trying to understand, um, maybe this is a, a word about the formal distinction. So, I can't remember where I got this, but I, I recall there being a, um, a distinction uh, between different kinds of predicates where um, there was the predicate property where you had, you had, um, properties, qualities that are not included in the definition of the thing, but in some sense follow from the definition of the thing. And the, the, the prime example is supposed to be something like um, you define triangle with three sides figure, but, and so that'll be the whole whole species of whatever thing. And then um, the, what's the formal, the formal predicate would be, some, I'm sorry, the uh, predicate property would be something like um, internal angles equal to right angles. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering is, it, are those <coughs> formally distinct? It said, you, you mentioned that it's not included in the account of, would, because one is entailed by the other, is that included in the account of it or not? Good, yeah, it's not. So yeah, so you're, the cases you're thinking of are, are propria, right? So they're pro or we, the translation would be properties, but you know, it, it's a narrow medieval sense of property. So yeah, the classic case is risibility, right? The ability to laugh. Yes. So risibility would be for SCOTUS really distinct from the um, the human soul, or from the, from the human essence. Okay. 
For Occam, he says there's a, just a distinction of reason between them because he thinks that, that propria, because they're in all and only the members of a single species, will, um, will just be the same thing as the species or the essence of the thing. But for Scotus, it's actually going to be really distinct. He thinks that risibility is a, just a different property than anything else. And even though only one type of thing has it, and all of the members of that species have it, uh, it's still just a different kind of quality. But he doesn't think that it's separable. So actually, that case, the one reason I analyze all this stuff about the formal distinction is because the standard account of the formal distinction is one claim. Oh, it's where there's, a, there's something genuinely different in the world, but there's no separability. And that real distinction involves, in, uh, sorry, there's uh, separability when you have real distinction. The case of risibility suggests otherwise, that even God couldn't remove risibility from the human, and yet it's really distinct. And so this presents problems for the standard account of the formal distinction, which is why I'm trying to give a new analysis of it, because it just doesn't fit all of the cases that are, that are there. But risibility is really distinct. Okay, so I'm I'm worried the the case of the, the case of the triangle worries me, and maybe Scotus with his sort of conceptualism or whatever might get him out of this. But um, he's not a conceptualist. Oh, I thought that's what you were saying. Not universals there. Yeah, he 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 thinks that there are common natures that exist in reality. Which I mean, the yeah. technical issues. Yeah, so yeah. Okay, so um, you said that the the trinitary distinction is simple identity with formal distinctness. If, um, if there's a formal distinction between uh, being a three-sided figure and being uh, a, a figure with angles equaling, internal angles equaling two right angles, mm -hmm. uh, that sounds, my, my concern is that just, that sounds like not enough of a, of a distinction, that the, you know, one just simply entails the other, and it leaves me very worried about what kind of distinction we have between, say, the father and the son in this. Um, I mean, obviously, this is good, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm worried that it isn't maybe adequate enough even for the Athanasian Creed. Um, there's a difference, but it, it sounds almost more like a distinction within reason or something like that. Sorry, did, when the triangle case, did you say, were you talking about trilaterality and triangularity? Or, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Scotus is going to say those are two really distinct properties of the triangle, or features, right, whether they're properties in his sense. So, uh, I mean, angularity and laterality are distinct, are really distinct features. So adding a threeness condition to them isn't going to change the fact that they're really distinct. My concern yeah. is also that one is definitional and the other follows yeah. from the definition, which sounded formal to me. From the way you described it. Yeah, so I, the, I, I guess I didn't see the concern then for the Trini oh, Trinitarian case. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, you might, I mean, some might say that being the, being the father entails that there be a son, and so you have something that follows from that, or something right. like yeah, that, and maybe. so, yeah, I guess I, I would, I, I would, I mean, we should talk about this more, because I, I, I actually am inclined to think that, that it would be plenty. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks 
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.